It's good to see everyone on Resurrection Sunday. Beautiful day. And if this is your first time here just visiting us, we certainly are uh, just considered a privilege to have you with us. And uh, God bless you. And uh, we pray uh, God's richest blessing. And by the time you walk out of here, that you'll know that Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead. Well, there was this burglar, and he broke into a house, and uh, he was looking for valuables. And as he was looking for those valuables, he heard a disembodied voice say, Jesus is watching you. And that kind of freaked him out a little bit, and he swung his flashlight around, but he didn't see anything. And he thought maybe it was just his imagination. And several minutes later, he heard again that disembodied voice say, Jesus is watching you. And that really freaked him out. And so, you know, he swung his flashlight all around and suddenly the light landed on a cage and there was a parrot inside the cage. And the burglar said, was that you speaking? And the parrot said, yes, it was. And the burglar said, what is your name? And the parrot said, Moses. And the burglar began to laugh. And he said, what kind of people would name their parrot Moses? And the parrot said, the same kind of people that would name their Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> well, this is a special morning, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's my favorite Sunday, quite honestly. Uh, it's such great hope, Resurrection Sunday. And so I think it's just appropriate we talk about Jesus and his resurrection, isn't it? And so I've entitled the message this morning, So What? So What? Lord, I just thank you for the worship team. I thank you for all that's transpired. And now, Lord, we're going to look at the greatest message of hope this morning. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, not only you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head, but you would just fill this place. You would manifest yourself. That you would give us ears to hear. You would give us soft hearts to receive perhaps the greatest message of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now, Holy Spirit, just glorify. Just glorify Jesus and may the word be anointed. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes these powerful words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the dead. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul continues on, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. The Apostle Paul makes it clear this morning that the linchpin of Christianity is a resurrection. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection. And I want you to know, I believe that the linchpin of Christianity, the resurrection, is the most provable historical event of all. And if you have an open mind, and if you've come with an open mind this morning, I think you will see the evidence indeed 
uh, points to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, for our purposes and our limited time, we're just going to key in on verses 14 and 15. And Skip put those back up on the screen. And it says this, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all of our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. What Paul is saying here, and it's extremely important, he's saying that the apostles, the disciples, and he's including himself, he is saying that we saw Jesus Christ dead, dead on that Good Friday, and we saw him raised to life. We saw his resurrection. Now, you've got two options here. Either the disciples are telling the truth, or they are lying. Either they are telling the truth, or they are lying. And you know... People always try to give naturalistic explanations as to what happened, you know, on Resurrection Sunday. And you have liberal theologians and you have various people saying that, in fact, Jesus did not die on the cross on that Good Friday. In fact, you know that the Muslims say that. The Muslims say that Jesus did not die on that Good Friday on the cross. They say, yes, he was scourged. Skip put up that picture. They will even admit that he was crucified on that cross on that Good Friday. Skip put up that picture. But what they say is, is that when Jesus cried out near the end, that I thirst, and that Roman soldier took that sponge and he dipped it into the sour wine and he put it on the pole and he lifted it up to Jesus. And they say, Jesus drank it. He was also drinking a a drug. And that drug knocked him out and it appeared as if he died, in fact, on the cross. Then when they took Jesus off the cross and they laid him in that cool tomb, the coolness revived him. And three days later, that Jesus, beaten, bloodied, and crucified, came crawling out on all fours, and he said, Hey, boys, I'm resurrected from the dead. Anybody going to be impressed with that? I don't think so. I think that's obviously nuts. That's a theological term. Now, the biggest problem you have, by the way, with that theory is that the Romans were very good at killing people. They were a killing machine. In fact, we are told that Jesus was scourged. Do you realize the scourging alone might have killed Jesus because of the tremendous loss of blood? But he wasn't just scourged. He was crucified, as we just saw. And then we are told in the gospel accounts that as the sun was going down, the Sabbath was approaching. So the Roman soldiers took a sledgehammer and they began to break the criminal's legs and then they came to Jesus. And when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. And here's why. Skip, can you put up John chapter 19, starting at verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. But you see, the Romans are very good at killing people. and They want to make sure that you're dead. So the Roman soldiers did do something. Skip, put up the next verse in John 19, 34. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out from that wound. Now, John is no physician, but he says that blood and water came out of that side wound. That's very important, and physicians have actually read the account of Jesus and his crucifixion. And here's what physicians have to say about that spear wound. Listen, from the side wound of Jesus came a flow of blood And water. This is consistent with the spear blow to the heart. Thus, 
rupturing the pericardium, the sac around the heart, releasing a flow of watery serum, followed by blood as the heart had been pierced. Jesus was dead. Now, as I said, the apostles were there on Good Friday, some near to the cross, some far away from the cross, and they saw Jesus die on that cross on that Good Friday. But you know what the interesting thing is? A short time later, just 50 days later, the apostles in the very city that Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem, they began to proclaim that they, in fact, saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, and they continued to proclaim that until their deaths. Now, I want to make two points about that, two points for you to consider. Point number one, again, I'm going to say it over and over. Either the disciples, 50 days later, were telling the truth, or they were, in fact, lying. And you know, like I said, people try to give natural explanations for what happened on that Resurrection Sunday. Because you see, you had the disciples and they were clearly cowards at one point and they became tremendous men of courage in a short period of time. So you know what the number one naturalistic explanation is for what happened to the disciples on that Resurrection Sunday and after? Hallucinations. (laughs) That's the best they can come up with. They say that the disciples had a hallucination of Jesus. Now, the problem with that, if you are in psychology, is you know that hallucinations are like dreams. They're singular. You know, people don't join you in your dreams. You have your own private dream. You also have your own private hallucination. You don't have a mass hallucination. And not only that, the other problem you have is the disciples just didn't have, you know, one appearance of Jesus. There were six resurrection appearances. So that means they had six mass hallucinations. I don't think that's very possible. Maybe you do, but I, I simply don't believe that that is really a possibility. It's actually kind of silly. So, Here we are. Either I'm going to say the disciples are telling the truth and they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, or they are lying. What they did, in fact, is they got together, collusion, and they decided to come up with the lie that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. I'm going to here suggest to you that that is not a viable theory, and this is my second point I want you to consider. All of the disciples, all of the apostles, save one, the apostle John, were martyred. They were killed for saying that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Let's just take the Apostle Peter just for a moment. Here are three facts that we know about the Apostle Peter. And by the way, they are outside of Scripture also. So here are three facts about Peter. Number one, we know that Peter, along with the other disciples, fled the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed and on the night that he uh, was uh, arrested by the Roman soldiers. They all fled. They played the part of a coward. But Peter went a step further. Within a six-hour period, Peter denied not knowing Jesus, not once, not twice. But he actually denied knowing him three times, three times. You talk about cowardice. And then we're also told that Peter was off in a distance. And Peter, on that Good Friday, saw Jesus die on that Good Friday. Now, those three facts about Peter are totally irrefutable. In fact, if they weren't true, Peter wouldn't have written about himself. Why would you write and put yourself in a bad light unless those facts were true? But here's the interesting point. Just 50 days later, Peter, along with the other disciples, 
There in Jerusalem, the very city that Jesus was crucified, there were well over 100,000 pilgrims. They were there on the temple steps. Can you see it now in your mind's eye? The Roman guards, the Roman soldiers are there who crucified Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who condemned Jesus, they're all there. And there can you see it in your mind's eye. Peter is in front of them and he preaches his first sermon. And he says this, skip, put up Acts chapter 2. Peter says this, people of Israel, can you see him now? Listen. So he's speaking to 100 to 200,000 people. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what, you would, what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed with the help of lawless Gentiles. You nailed him to the cross and you killed him. Gee, how about the subtle approach here, huh? <laughs> you murderers! That's what Peter said. He points to over 200,000 people. You're all murderers. And Peter continues his uplifting message. And he says this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you have received forgiveness for your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter ends with the flourish. Skip, put up the last verse for right now. Ah, one more verse. We don't have that one other verse. Well, Peter says that we in fact know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, he said, repent and be baptized. And I want you to know that the message that you saw, Peter continued to preach, not only in Jerusalem, not only all throughout Israel, but he began preaching it throughout the known Roman world, and he ended up in the city, the very capital of the world, Rome, and he preached that message in Rome. And this is how Peter's life ended. Skip, can you put it up? There in Rome, Peter was crucified upside down. Do you realize how painful that is? Literally, your organs, your internal organs, move up your body cavity, strangulating you, suffocating you. And I want you to know, that is how Peter died. But it wasn't just Peter, by the way. The other disciples also, also died martyrs' deaths, very similar to Peter. Now, the truth of the matter is, all, like I said, of the disciples, save one, were martyred this way. Only the apostle John was not martyred this way. And do you realize if Peter had just, he stood in front of Nero. He stood in front of Nero, the emperor of the world. The emperor of Rome. And all Peter had to do was say, you know what, Nero? For the last 30 to 32 years, I was just kidding. <laughs> just a joke, you know. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, but we never saw him resurrected from the dead. He's not Lord and God. You, Nero, are Lord and God. And then all they had to do was burn some incense, and he would have gotten off scot-free, and so would have the other disciples, and they would have lived long, long lives. Now, please, please, do not compare the apostles, the disciples, to Islamic terrorists. Skip put up the picture, because this has been done. Who commandeer airplanes, 
into buildings killing thousands of people. Please understand, the Islamic terrorists who did that on 9-11 believed in Allah. They believed in Muhammad. They believed in the Quran. I used to teach Islam. Do you realize that there's 103 war passages in Islam? That's the truth. That's the truth of the matter. These people really believe in Muhammad. They believe in the Quran and what it said. So they were dying for what they believed. But that wouldn't be true. That would not be true of the apostles. You see, the apostles were saying that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's either true or not true. So they know whether they're lying or not. So if the apostles, and all of them, by the way, all of them saved one, please understand, Peter dies upside down and cross. All of them die horrible deaths. They would be dying for a lie. Nowhere in the annals of human history has anyone ever given their life up for a lie. Enter Chuck Colson. Skip put up his picture. We've... I've talked about Colson before, but he's really important. Charles Colson, by the way, he was the special counsel to President Richard Nixon. Colson also was put in charge of Nixon's re-election campaign in 1972. Colson was dubbed by the press the evil genius. He eventually went to jail. He went to prison for his part in the Watergate cover-up. And there in prison, he became a broken man. Can you imagine being Chuck Colson? He was one of the most powerful men in the entire world. He loses all of his power. He loses all of his prestige. He lost much of his money. And he was there languishing in a prison. And there he found Jesus Christ. And when Chuck Colson came out of that prison, he was a different man. And he founded a thing called Prison Fellowship. And he was extremely bright. And he would speak at various universities about Christianity. And at, at the university, here is part of what he would say in his speech on Christianity. Colson would say, I know a little something about cover-ups. And people would begin to laugh. Is it really likely that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection, could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of the early church councils, the horrendous purge of the first century believers who were cast by the thousands to lions for refusing to announce the, renounce the lordship of Jesus Christ. Take it from one who was inside the Watergate web looking out who saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is. Nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and that he indeed is Lord. Now, I'm up here to tell you this morning, if you're willing to look at just those simple facts, there are so many more, there's no doubt that Jesus Christ, in fact, rose from the dead. But you're saying, so what? What does it mean? What are the ramifications of Jesus rising from the dead? So let me, just as we wind this thing down, give you a couple ramifications. You know, several years ago, many years ago, in fact, there was a very famous sermon preached. It's Friday. But Sundays are coming. The sermon was preached by a black preacher, an old black Baptist preacher, in fact. And if you know anything about black preaching, and I love black preaching, they kind of start out slow. And he said, it's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he is praying, but Sundays are coming. 
It's Friday. The disciples are hiding. And Peter's denying that he knows the Lord. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is standing before the high priest of Israel. Silent as a lamb before the slaughter. But Sunday's coming. Now, as I said, this is a black Baptist preacher. And he's preaching to a predominantly black church. And you see, in a black church, the sermon is participatory. They kind of encourage the preacher, especially if it's a white boy like myself, all right? Now, now... In a black church, the women also participate, and I've said before, they kind of move their hands like this. I want to see the ladies do this, and they go, well, well, my, my, oh, Lordy, Lordy, help him, all right? Well, well, my, my, because look at, see, look at you guys. Wow. And then, and then and the black men, they go, preach it, brother, preach it, brother, keep going, keep going, don't quit. And of course, the Black preacher, he gets encouraged. So you know what happens when a black preacher gets encouraged? He picks up the speed. Yeah, see, we we got a black brother right here. He knows. He knows. And they pick up the speed. They pick up the pacing. It was Friday. Jesus is beaten. He's mocked and he's spat upon. But that was Friday and... All right, you guys are good. It was Friday. Pilate is washing his hands. He's thinking that he's washed away all of his troubles. But that was Friday. And what Pilate didn't know is that Sundays. Come on, come on now. It was Friday. The Pharisees were strutting around. They were laughing. They thought that they were back in charge of things. But what they didn't know is it was just Friday and It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody, and he's dying. And Mary is crying her eyes out. The disciples have fled. But that was Friday, and what they didn't know is that. It was Friday. Jesus is at the moment of death. Heaven is weeping, and hell is partying. But that was Friday, and. And the black preacher kept going, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it is Sunday. It is Sunday. Jesus has risen. The tomb is empty. And Jesus is alive forevermore. And let me tell you, it changed their lives. The disciples were never, ever the same again after Resurrection Sunday. They couldn't be the same. Because you know why? Because now they saw things from an eternal perspective and not a temporal perspective. Let me give you a feel for this as we come to the end. Imagine you have two women of the same age. The same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, even the same temperament. And you hire both of them and you say to each of them, I want you to take part A and put it into slot B. And when you do that, you hand it to the person next to you. And I want you to do that for over eight hours a day. You then put them in identical rooms with identical lighting and identical temperature. You even give them the same number of breaks. It's very, very boring work. Their conditions are the exact same except one thing. You tell the first woman that you hire that at the end of the year, she will make $30,000. And you tell woman number two that you hire at the end of the year, she will make $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman begins saying, you know, isn't this tedious? This is really boring work. I think I'm going to quit. The second woman says, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I even whistle while I work. This is the most fabulous job I've ever had. What's happening here? No, no, what's happening here? You have two human beings who are experiencing the exact same circumstances, but they're experiencing them diametrically opposite. What is happening here? I'll tell you what's happening. The difference is their expectations for the future. You see, what you believe, what I believe about the future completely controls how we will experience the present. I'm going to say it again. What you believe about your future completely controls how you will experience the present. And the challenge this morning is this. What do you believe about your future? No, no. What do you believe about your future? You see, the reason... I live victoriously. The reason why I don't live under my circumstances where the vast majority of people live, but above my circumstances is because I know that the best is yet to come for Frank Ray. No, no. I know that the best is yet to come for Frank Ray. I know that Jesus is alive. You know why I know Jesus is alive? Because I've experienced his resurrection in my heart. I've experienced his resurrection in my heart. Have you? See, you've got to know. I, I, I mean, I know intellectually from what happened to the disciples, he has to be alive. But it's one thing to know it here, and it's another thing to experience the resurrection life of Jesus in your heart. And if you haven't experienced, you either know it or you don't. And if you don't, the key is right there the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you've come to the point in your life where you realize that God jumped in human skin in the person of Jesus Christ, he went on that cross because of love. He went on that cross because of love. Love for you and love for me so that we can be connected back to the Father. And if you right now have enough faith, if you have faith moving in you and you can reach and you can touch that and you can believe that, then you know what? All of a sudden the Holy Spirit will invade you. And you will begin to experience the resurrection life in your heart. And I pray that you won't walk out of here not knowing, not having experienced that. Skip, can you play the video? I think they topped that last song, didn't they? Amen. Amen. I do pray that your Redeemer really does live. If you don't, please, we'll have people up here wanting to pray with you and talk to you because there's no greater hope that you can have than knowing that this is just the beginning. There's something much greater, much greater. The best is yet to come for those who know Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, please come forward. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you, and may his resurrection life rise in your heart. God bless you and take care.